Okay, we're listening up, Orange County. It's time for Talent Talk Radio. Brought to you by People G2. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me. My name is Chris Dyer, and I'll be your host for the next hour. In case you're tuning in for the first time, the Talent Talk Radio Show features a wide range of guests who care about talent or are uniquely talented themselves. On this show, we talk about talent in those two ways. First, as it relates to success and uncovering the secrets of really talented people. And second, we also talk about talent in relation to human resources and how HR leaders find the best candidates today. Talent has a couple different meanings in the business world, and this show really looks to explore how that works. Hopefully that makes sense. My guests include CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR executives from all types of industries. And when I'm out at networking events and industry conferences, peer groups, I have the privilege of meeting inspiring leaders all the time. I created this forum to allow you to listen in on our dialogue and learn some practical advice that will hopefully impact your career in a positive way. Before I get to my guests today, Hong Bui and Nina Reese, I want to thank all of you for turning in live today. Don't forget you can submit your questions via Twitter to my guests. All you need to do is tweet at PeopleG2 with the hashtag Talent Talk. My producer, Mike, will feed me the best questions and we'll try to work them into the show. Also, don't forget, you can listen to this show via a podcast on iTunes anytime, anywhere. All you need to do is subscribe uh, for our weekly show and it'll be sent to you anytime we post up a new one. So without further ado, let's get started. Welcome, Hong. Thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you for having me on the show. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you have a very interesting background and then, of course, about your company, Podcast. Well, a um, little bit about myself. I spent about 25, come to think, about 30 years in this in- industry. I started out my career at Apple Computer, worked there for seven years, and I went to Sun Microsystem, had to install and productize the Java that become JavaSoft. And I found a company called um, Visto, now good. It's about $2 billion company today in the Bay Area. And I left there and I joined Amazon.com. I was there for four years at one of the executive. And then I left. I found another company called Memeals. Is I was CEO there for seven years. And I left currently. I've um, is my current company is Podcast. It's my latest baby. Great. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Podcast and what they do? Well, Podcast is uh, is a company. You know every. If you work in an industry today in high tech, so you hear about everyone talk about the cloud. But what we do at podcast, we take it to, we take it to the next step. So instead of you have to upload your content into the cloud before you can get access to it, that we allow all the individual to be able to build their own cloud, um, with the machine, with the computer you already have. So basically, if you already have a computer, you already have a mobile devices, once you install Podcast, we create your own private cloud network, and you we connect all the device together, and then you can get access to all your information from anywhere. And because of that, it becomes much more cost-efficient and, and also more secure. Yeah, and we've used Podcast before, and it's a great service. You can access all those things that are on your computer. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you don't necessarily have to put everything up in the cloud, but through your system, it kind of allows you to access those different things from the different devices? Yeah, so basically, um, you're absolutely right. Um, you can, you know, selectively, I use the cloud, so you put some content into the cloud. But majority of the content that you need is sitting on your computer and your desktop, at work, at home, or on your server. So podcast allows you to get to all those information securely from anywhere. Oh, that's great. So you also mentioned another company. I mean, you mentioned some great companies in, in your intro there. Uh, you know, most notable ones that people would probably recognize would be Apple or Amazon. But you know, mentioned uh, a Mimeo in there. So even though you're no longer the CEO there, you still had a hand in there okay, as a board member. I know a lot of people, sometimes it's difficult to manage just one company. You know, How do you find the time to run podcasts and still be involved in that and your other endeavors? That's just a very good question. In the early day podcasts, I do have some time to provide insight to Mimeo. But now, given the, the company require every single minute of my day, so I could no longer be a board member, mm-hmm. be effectively and offer a responsible advice on the consistent basis. So what I do is I resign from the board a year ago and focus 100% of my time on podcast. So you reached a point where you felt like podcast was pulling you too much. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And also, man, it's a different relationship and responsibility come with being a board member. 
And how did you how did you determine when that moment was the right moment to do that? Because for a lot of people, they're involved in a lot of different things, and to make the right moment to actually say, okay, I need to put all of my eggs in this basket and leave the rest behind to really be successful over here. Any clues or insight on, on how do you really make that choice? Each individual situation is differently and depend on the talents that you have mm-hmm. and what industry that you're in. Uh, considering um, podcast as a very small company, so therefore that I'm not like typical CEO where you can sit and then you delegate responsibility. I also responsibility to come up with product idea and build a product and involve into very details of it. Mm-hmm. So that's going to take a lot of my cycle away, right? So therefore, because of that, then I could no longer be able to, you know, um, be able to, you know, look at the other in the industry market and offer very sensible advice. Mm-hmm. Now, one would say that you can land your expertise in managing and all the other different area, but there also, as the in in industry growth and also judicial uh, responsibility, and and there's sometimes. The conflict and interest arise, so I have to watch for that as well. Mm-hmm. When you're involved with a lot of many different company, so therefore they require a lot more of your resources, mm-hmm. right? So to me, in order to make a clean break, so I, so I put hundred percent my time into podcast, and given the, our competitor, you know, like Dropbox, Box of the World, those of some very big company with a lot of resources, so therefore I have to focus my 100% in order for us to build a, a best and great product. Mm-hmm. Well, earlier in your answer there, you, you talked about it's kind of an individual decision. And yeah. a lot of what we've seen from our guests so far on the radio program is that they have some very unique perspectives mm-hmm. from their individual experiences. Uh, Mike Minch, who was a, recently just, just stopping the CEO of Line 6, talked about the real differences between his time at Apple and his time at IBM mm-hmm. and how the two really gave him incredible insight and perspective to be a great CEO for Line 6, but they were drastically different. So I wonder if you might share a little bit about your experiences and how it affected your leadership uh, today, maybe with some of the companies you worked for like Apple and Amazon or any of the others. Yeah, so so from the outside looking in, the Amazon and Apple computer have a lot of similarity, right? Them both are very powerful company driven by some very big idea. Right. They got some of the most talented and, you know, some amazing founder were there like Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos. Right. So you see there's a lot of similarity uh, between the, the company and they have the people in that company have the will to be the best and the greatest that they ever can be. So all those individuals in that company, so I think and there's a lot of common threads. Um, the differences between the two companies, I think if you, you, you look from their objective, Amazon.com, in for most part, is a service company, right? They they look at the consumer what they want and what they need, and they build their their, their plan in from that point inward. From Apple Computer, they have a lot of the people there who want to build some one of the most amazing product, and for most part, they just build the market out of that, mm-hmm. right? So two totally different approach. And so for me uh, to build my own company, I have a blend of those two philosophy because I we also a very customer service centric company. So we want to think about the customer first, but we also want to build some most amazing product when people use it. They just love that reflect on the all the great review that we got on for our products. Um, from recruiting talent people, I think they also attract you know different people as well. Well, yeah, and, and speaking about talented people uh, that they might bring in, you know, as you have kind of gotten into your companies now as the CEO, the entrepreneur, mm. were there certain positions in that organization that were the most critical uh, to develop in order to kind of start achieving your overall plan or goal? Uh, I think all the key positions in your companies, by definition, they're very hard to bring those talent in. Mm-hmm. And I think the great news about those two companies, because... They have a very powerful brand name that a lot of people would like to work for them. Right. 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 And, but they have the different problem because they, you know, they hire people by truckloads. So therefore <laughs> a lot of, you know, quant, so therefore they also have the issue with the quantities as well. Um, but both those organizations that, um, when it come to talent, they don't crumble for, 
for people less than what they are looking for. They mm-hmm. want to hire the best and the best because they believe the best people want to work with the best people and have want to achieve great result. So once you mix in some subbar individual, then that is where you start to iterate to the average, to the norm. So therefore, that plays the responsibility to each one of the manager, the executive, and the interviewees to make sure the process being screened very carefully. And um, and I think at Amazon.com, they really took that to the highest level. Um, they rather let a few good people go um, because they're not hired than than hire the wrong person. And, and within your or- your own organization, with a particular job positions, you know, titles that were you thought were really critical for, for podcast? Yeah, so I, I think the uh, critical position is, is marketing, product management, mm-hmm. sale, right? I, I think all those positions are very key to an organization. Also a technical person as well. So for me, all the, those positions are very hard to, to, to feel. So that's why you have to search why and hard to find those kind of talents. What do you think? What are the key? You talk to many executives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think product development. Yeah. You know, having that and, and biz dev, those seem to be the ones we hear the most. I think sales and marketing is always a challenge for everybody to find the right person. Yeah. But there's a lot of people to choose from. You know, it's a matter of finding the right fish in the sea, but there's a lot of fish. I mean, there's a lot of people in sales and marketing. But biz dev uh, is a big one. How do you find that right person? Yeah, I, I think they, they all have their own challenge, right? Although there's a lot of marketing and sales persons. I mean, I also have this conversation with a lot of board members and all different executives. Because by nature, the marketing person and the sales person is so savvy at selling themselves. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> so therefore, they, they're good at it. So when you hear it, it sound really good, it, it, mm-hmm. it sounds great. But how do you know it's the right one for us? Because how do you verify it? How, how do you, you verify mm-hmm. it? So that's it. Just have their own challenge. Right. But there are many of them, but I think it just still to find the right one that really push your organization or build your organization around those individuals so key. Mm-hmm. Right. Because if you hire one bad person in, they really can spoil the whole environment. So I think it, it, it's have their own challenge. Yeah. Right? But I think the product management person, I think if, if I were to point one, I kind of agree with that. Because today, nowadays, you have to have a good product person. It have to be both technically savvy and market savvy and consumer savvy, you know, and mix into a single person. So very difficult to find. And that's an excellent point because a lot of what people do is they try to specialize in something. But then we, we ask for some of these positions in our organizations for them not to be well, maybe to be specialists, but to be multiple specialists, right? And, and and not just singular in what they can do. They're not just a salesperson, not just marketing, but they need to understand product. They need to understand technical things. They need to understand customer service and management. And, and that's a really, I think maybe that's part of the complexity for some of those people. And, and that's its peripheral vision of your, not only that one person, but would you would like the leaders in your company to uh, to have that skill set. And from my time at Amazon.com, I think Amazon does the best job of develop those kind of talents. So basically, sometimes they're unable to find a certain skill set that they need. So basically, they try to f- hire the smartest person that they can hire because they know they cannot train that and the people have a good attitude. And from then, they let that person run different organizations. Even though you have no technical background, but you're smart, you will figure out a way to run a technical organization. Mm-hmm. If you're a technical person, if you're smart, you will figure out a way to run a business or, or run whatever. So they really cycle the executive to different of those groups. So that way your skill set become more rounded, mm-hmm. so to speak. Well, you know, let, let's kind of change the focus here from the companies you've worked for to maybe to you specifically and maybe mm-hmm. think back to when you were very the first time in more of a leadership position till now how have you how have you changed as a leader maybe you can kind of talk about some of those those things that you had to to change good or bad uh to to become you know the best person you could be for your company that's a pretty loaded question <laughs> <laughs> because you know there are the general rules to say that you always you know need to do better at everything you do and you always need to write 
um, you know, I read all the business books. I read all of those and I applied some of them, some of them good and some of them bad. Um, but, but overall, I think what you draw from is you need to understand a, a certain process to help to guide you. So I think what I learned the most is over the year, I tend to le- rely on more processed. Mm-hmm. I rely on more my experience. And because the innovation only can come from when you lean on certain process and out of the process you can measure yourself and the performance of your company. And out of that, then you can come on which area I can do better. So in a way, it's um, that I lean into the process. And because of do that, lean into the process allows you to make certain decisions pretty much systematically versus it's... And then sometimes, of course, you know, as an entrepreneur, you rely on a lot of your insight and your gut instinct, but you try to keep that to the minimal. So therefore, that your com- that's why it would help you to guide your company. So the process really allows you that function of measurement and reflection within the organization. And then there's a more pragmatic approach that I always feel that how you need to change how this applies to you in a company. And to me, it, it actually is pretty straightforward. If you compete in an industry that grows 50% a year, so you as a CEO, you say in order for you to to be successful, you need to be grow at the rate of 50% a year and on your organization to, to grow at least 50% a year. So how you accomplish that? You need to be smarter, you need to be more efficient, and you need to learn more, not only you, but your whole staff member and how you measure yourself across all of that. And hopefully hire the right people. Exactly, and fill in all the right talents. And, and then there's a term for that they call knowledge gaps, uh-huh. right? If you want to compete something, you see some emerging opportunity, and you do that. And you see big companies do that all the time. For example, like uh, Netflix, they're shipping DVDs, right? They were very successful in that. They see streaming technology coming, so how would they fill that knowledge gap? by acquire technology, by hiring the talent. It's always begin with the people that have a lot of knowledge and believe in that vision and help them to propel forward. Amazon.com the same way that they see that, you know, um, Kindle book is mm-hmm. a great way. Then they, prior to that, they never build hardware. So it doesn't matter. They, they, they start with a great business and they start acquire talent and knowledge how to build the best possible devices. And it didn't start immediately. It take multiple try, but that is something to stick with. Yeah. Well, I mean, you certainly have had quite unique experiences dealing with some of the companies or working within some of the companies that I think a lot of people would love to to know more about or be in the inside of. So maybe you might have a unique perspective on this, but do you think that loving what you do really helps drive your success? Oh, absolutely. I would not be where I am without it. Because you have to have the passion about what you do. So make you work harder, you work longer, and give you the courage when you failed to retry and retry. And also be able to inspire others to do the same as you. Mm-hmm. So I think you have to have it's and in the combination of those many things, that's what how you iterate it toward success. So you have to have the passion for what you do. Mm-hmm. Right? And, you know, it's, it's, it's always about, you know, finding what is the meaning to your life, what what brings you happiness, and make that the primary focus. And so for me, I'm a builder, so as long as I get to build things that make people life better, I'm very happy at doing that. So you have the passion identified, but then, you know, sometimes people have the, the passion and the skill, but then they look at themselves and they say, well, there's something that I'm not doing well enough for the organization. There's some part of me that's not there yet. Was there something that you identified that you had to work on that became a part of your, you know, kind of overall blueprint of success, you know, that maybe five years ago or a year ago or ten years ago you say, I'm not very good at this, but, I, you know, I need to work at it. Now Now you're good at it. Was yeah. there something like that? Yeah. That came back to about what is your focus in life, right? Mm-hmm. What what you want to be successful at and what you are most happy at doing it. Uh, f- because, you know, when people ask me, you know, what I would like to improve, and then I would have a long list for them. There are many things that could be better. But professionally, you only can identify one or two areas you can work at it. So the thematic for me um, 
its communications mm-hmm. in the last 25 years is is always about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, you know, I was very shy person, and English is my second language, so therefore it's more challenged than me at the most. And I pick a few to be an innovator, so therefore a lot <laughs> of your concepts are pretty abstract to a lot right. of people to begin with. So how do you communicate effectively to get them excited? First, to get them to understand what you're trying to accomplish, and after that, to get them excited about it and get them to work together with you on it and how to achieve a common goal. Right, mm-hmm. and you. If you look at all of that, and I think that it is the key ingredient to almost successful, because you know how to communicate effectively what you try to accomplish to your team member and to your partner and to your customer on right. the same thing. So over the year, and you know, and how you got quite talent. How do you communicate of your vision to the people you want to bring in to help you? Mm-hmm. And get them excited and bought into what you are doing. So I think that's one of the key parts is this communication, and I'm constantly working on it yeah. day and night. Yeah, it's interesting because I've, I've asked this question to a lot of entrepreneurs. I ask them, you know, should you try to really work hard at what you're not good at, or should you delegate that off to other people? You know, mm-hmm. is it better to recognize what you're not good at and give it? And every single time, they tell me you need to work at what you're not good at and then i have a follow-up and i say but what do you do and they say oh but i delegate it (laughs) (laughs) so yeah and these are like you know very very prominent you know uh, entrepreneur ceos with hugely successful some of the billion dollar companies and i I get the same answer every time you really need to work what you're not good at but they don't do that they don't do that and and, no and and they've learned enough to just to push it off to someone else who is good at it you know this has come back to what you're passionate about Mm -hmm. and what you're good at it yeah. and what you are suck at it i'm not so good at it <laughs> um so you know I, I i've shared a point of view depend on what you don't want to do mm-hmm. right so if it sell other people can do better job yeah. than me marketing mm-hmm. other people do better job than me but for building product that's what i love to do that's yeah. what i have a passion about it so if I don't have enough knowledge about it, I spend a lot of time learning about it and mm-hmm. reading about it. And and, well, and speaking of reading about it, before we run out of time here, what uh, this is sort of the listener favorite? You know, what, what what books are you reading right now? Oh, good to great. I read that about five times already, but it's time I read it is I pick up something new. Good to great. Yeah. And what what's that about? Just general synopsis here. Uh, general synopsis is is basically to say, you know, why are certain companies good mm-hmm. and average, and what make them great. Oh, that sounds like a right, and 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 it's, it's difficult to pinpoint, but one line in there that also I serve as a reminder: good is the enemy of great. Hmm. That's a that's a very very interesting. Yeah. So oh. And it's by Jim Collins. Is that right? Our our producer here has just let us know that book's by Jim Collins. So in case yeah. anyone wants to pick that up on, uh, we plugged Amazon enough for all this show, so pick it up on Amazon. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, our, our last question for today, this interview's gone by just absolutely lightning fast, but um, how can people get a hold of you and Polecast and find out more if they're interested? Yeah, people get a hold of me just hong at podcast.com podcast p-o-l-k-a-s-t dot com and you can get hold of me or you can get hold of our product and each one of you if you have businesses you want to build your own cloud securely and you could with podcast only take you two minutes and then you no longer have to put your, your content to the cloud anymore Wow. Well, I know it uh, certainly is a good product. We've used it before. And uh, Hong, I want to thank you very much for being on the Talent Talk radio show. It was a pleasure having you. Uh, Up next, Nina Reese will be on the show after this quick commercial break. Imagine what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries, we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. 
in the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret. With 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers, for over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management. No matter the size of the project, Decision Toolbox delivers incredible results. A cost per hire less than half of what contingency firms charge. With the winning candidate presented in an average of 14 days. All with a 12-month candidate warranty. With results like that, Decision Toolbox won't be a secret for long. Visit us at www.dtoolbox.com for more information. When you use the Premier Rewards Gold Card from American Express, the rewards points can keep on multiplying. Buy three with triple points on airfare. Buy two with double points on gas and groceries. And a single point for pretty much every other dollar you spend on the card. Then, start choosing from over a million rewards to redeem all those points. Apply today and the annual fee for the first year is on us. Call 1-800-AXP-GOLD or visit AXPGOLD.com. The annual fee for the card is $175. See terms, conditions, and restrictions at AXPGOLD.com. And now back to Chris and his next guest. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. Just a quick reminder, you can subscribe to the podcast of this show or listen to all of our past shows by visiting octalkradio.net and clicking on the Shows tab and, of course, clicking on Talent Talk. In the short time we've existed, we have already amassed a huge following on uh, iTunes and our podcast, so thank you. My next guest is Nina Reese. Don't forget to tweet your questions live right now for Nina by sending them to at PeopleG2, hashtag Talent Talk. Without further ado, Nina, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe your, how, how you got to where you are today, and of course about uh, the Reese Law Group. Well, sure. I started off as a litigator, and I worked exclusively in litigation for several years. Before long, though, I was able to see patterns with clients' legal problems and to help them shed light on what business practices could be changed to either reduce or better manage the company's litigation risk. In some instances, the contracts had to be modified, so we took care of that. In others, it was a matter of putting policies and procedures in place and working with HR and department heads to make sure that those procedures were followed. And we took care of that, too. And today, my practice is split fairly evenly between litigation and transactional work in the fields of business and real estate. My firm is kind of designed to be a one-stop shop for companies, so I represent many of them as their outside general counsel, and my clients range in size from very small, in some cases, you know, just a handful of entrepreneurs, to publicly traded Fortune 500 companies, and I love it. So what prompted you to kind of make that decision to go out on your own and start your own firm? Well, there are a number of factors. You know, of course, out of law school, you start working for larger firms and, you know, people who uh, have had a great deal more experience practicing law than you have, and that's where you get your training. The biggest decision for me, though, is that I'm entrepreneurial myself, so that's something that my clients really appreciate. Now I can talk to them about their businesses because I truly understand. I run my own business. And when I counsel my clients on legal matters, I find that they're more comfortable discussing their business challenges as well. And I'm happy to help anywhere I can. And litigators, lawyers, however you want to frame it, aren't always looked at as leaders within the business community or business environment. But yet, in many cases, you're being asked to provide very key information and to really provide that leadership to an organization, whether it's preemptively or during a crisis or during particular litigation. Attorneys really are in a very crucial time leaders within and whatever organizations that they're helping. How have you changed as a leader? Are there kind of any notable changes that you would describe and why, maybe why that was important to your growth as well? Well, as a business owner, a director, officer, manager, you know, whatever you are in that supervisory scheme, you're constantly learning and growing. And every day provides an opportunity for education. You learn and grow from your own experience at companies and at firms by watching what your clients did well and maybe not so well, you apply those lessons to your own business, to your own model, and to your own leadership style. Um, and you also learn from your own experiences having been an employee at, you know, whether it's a firm after you've entered the workforce after law school, or even, you know, for those of us who took a few years before law school and worked 
you know, from our pre-law school experiences as well. As a practical matter, you know, many people start working sometime in their teens or at least early 20s, and they're an employee for a period of time first before they take that entrepreneurial leap. So they have ample opportunity to see at least a couple of different styles and really see what fits and what gels for themselves. Overall, I tend to be hands-off. I try to set very clear expectations, and I let people struggle with an issue on their own to see what results they can arrive at without my help. And then we sit down and talk about it and, you know, brainstorm some other solutions. And sometimes their solution really is the best one, but it's good to get that conversation going, and it's good to see what your staff's thinking process is. I try to heap on praise for good effort. I try to be very generous with my staff, and I treat people well. And so far, it's worked out quite nicely, but that doesn't mean that I've stopped pulling every business owner I know about what they do, what works, and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that really ever ends. No, and then that's just the constant track out there of trying to learn as much as you can from, you know, those people that you respect or that you run into that are successful. I mean, and that's really the kind of the key of the show here today is learning what successful people are doing. Kind of the themes I picked up in your answer there was you kind of are hands off, so you're not a micromanager and you're allowing people, other people who are doing work within your firm. And that, that sounds like it could be a difficult thing to do to not be on top of people, not to be micromanaging them when, when you, kind of their project to be so key and important how do how is that just something that's natural for you to to be hands-off and to let them struggle a little bit before they no no unfortunately (laughs) it's not um it's really something i have to grapple with and there are and i will say that there are times that being a micromanager is really appropriate and you kind of have to use your judgment about whether this is really a time of crisis where you really don't have the luxury of time and the luxury of being able to really think things through and solicit opinions from there's who work for you and you really just need to attack a problem immediately. And then there are other times that you have a little more time. Maybe you have a few days to deal with something so you can let your um, staff kind of think about it or you, the attorneys who are working for you think about it for a while and see what their ideas might be because frankly everyone brings their own point of view to the table. You know, no one's to say that just because I have a few more years under my belt than some of the other people who work for me that I have the right answers all the time. I think perspective is a very important thing and I think especially with you know in my line of work anyway where you have judges and juries making decisions getting a good uh, outside perspective is always helpful yeah, so th- you're not drinking your own Kool-Aid right right I think you, you bring up an excellent point of kind of tempering what you're going to do based upon the situation exactly uh, I know a lot of people will read a book and they'll get an idea and it sounds great but they apply it to everything all the time instead of to the right situation at the right time. And they get themselves in trouble. And I think you made an excellent point that, you know, sometimes when there's a really a problem or a really strict deadline, you might need to be less hands off. But in the other times when you have that the moment to let them really work on it, let them get some experience without you being you know, right on top of them. Those are the right times to let them learn, to let them explore, to let them really get to those kind of avenues themselves, which really helps them be faster, more effective in the future. It's an excellent bit of advice for people to take. So you mentioned a little bit in the beginning in your introduction that you love what you do. So I'll ask you, do you think that loving what you do really helps drive success for people and your clients that you run into? Oh, absolutely, without a doubt. You spend far too many hours working not to be passionate about what you do. And people are passionate about different things, you know, whereas I may not become overly enthused about preparing taxes. Thankfully, my CPA is. And while I get very excited about legal processes and, you know, legal strategies that one might employ, my marketing folks or my PR folks might not be as thrilled. So I think everyone has their own particular sets of interests and their sets of strengths, and you play to those interests and strengths. When you find that you think about creative solutions or novel problems or your industry as a whole during your off hours and for fun, when your pleasure reading tends to complement your professional life, you know that you're in the right line of work. And if you're constantly interested and engaged, if you find that what you do is challenging and intriguing, you're just going to want to work harder. You're going to take more pride in your success. And with that, I think you'll really have more success. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's generally what people are looking for. But that is, it's very interesting that you just brought up that if your pleasure reading is in some way kind of tied to what you do as well, 
Um, if you're spending all your time reading cooking books, but you're an attorney, maybe you're in the wrong business. Right. You know? <laughs> or maybe you just end up representing a lot of, you know, chefs and restaurateurs. And right. Well, that's another way to look at it as well. You're right. But you find that outlet. But yeah, I think if you're not spending some time in your own pleasure reading, and learning about those things and, and what you do for your work, that it could be a problem. It's a, it's a good, it's a kind of a good measurement. So, you know, the show here, Talent Talk, is really centers around leadership and talent development from a perspective of business leaders. But as a lawyer, kind of bring a different perspective to talent and dealing with talented people in business. I know one concern that a lot of businesses have or the CEOs have is they're always looking, you know, for the best of the best, but there's some concern or fear that when they get them in the door, that they might take their trade secrets, they may open up shop mm-hmm. next door. And so they end up sometimes, maybe those who are less savvy or less secure, they end up hiring people who aren't the best of the best because they're almost trying to guard themselves. So what, what suggestions may you have from a legal perspective on how people can deal with that? Well, that's a very good question, and it's one that I get frequently. Here in California, non-compete agreements have been struck down as being invalid. For years, people tried to use non-solicitation agreements to prevent employees from leaving and taking others with them, but the courts became wise to that work around a few years ago as well and really limited the scope of non-solicitation agreements. From a legal perspective, you treat confidential and proprietary information as exactly that. Things like customer lists, pricing information, margins, certain information you might have about your customers purchasing habits, their budgets, things that aren't public or publicly available, things that take a lot of time to compile. Um, All of that can be deemed protectable trade secret information if it's been properly protected by the company and stored as private information. You know, for example, don't go screaming it from the rooftops. Um, Don't let papers lay around that has you know this information on it. Um, use it as a need-to-know basis. The employees who need to know this information have access to it, but maybe the IT staff doesn't necessarily need that information. So you're just kind of selective about what information you disseminate or make available and what information you really try to secure as your own confidential proprietary information. As a practical matter, this has two results. Number one, it protects your information from dissemination, from use by competitors, even without uh, your employees having left or started their own company. But on the other hand, employees who might be inclined to leave will will understand that this is the company's proprietary information. It's your secret information that you do guard, you safeguard, you protect, you take all those steps. And it sends the message to them that if they're going to use that information or try to use that information, that they're going to be facing a pile of legal trouble. So the same is true of employee salaries and bonuses and that sort of thing. To the extent that an employee leaves and wants to take some of your top earners away from you, having information about what those employees make, what their sensitivity issues are, uh, their bonus structures, can help them lure away that talent away from you. So that's information that you want to keep secret as well. So not only information about your customers, your product lines, if they're products instead of services, but information about the employees themselves. A company would probably also be wise to obtain assignments for all inventions, developments, processes that the employment, employee might come with under his term of employment. And this ensures that the developments belong to the company exclusively and are not for that employee to use for competing work or disseminate to competitors. Another thing a company can do is prohibit the current employee from competing with the company during his term of employment and possibly also prevent him from preparing for competition during the employment. Now, that's something that varies from state to state, and the company will want to check with their attorney to see what the limitations are within their state. But, you know, it's a good set of questions to have in the back of your mind to discuss with your counsel. Well, that's a new one I hadn't heard of. Uh, you just mentioned it's kind of stopping them from competing while they're working for you and then also from prepa- from preparing to compete right. against you while they're working for you. So that may be certainly a, a good thing to look at. Uh, of course, state to state is going to have some differences, but for companies to look at that because that may be a, a deterrent as well and you don't want an employee to be spending the last three or four months of their work with you just essentially setting up shop and preparing for to compete with you. 
And in most cases, that's generally with that rare occurrence does happen. That's what they're doing. They are using and, yeah. their time with you to prepare. And so that may be a good way to give you some backbone if it does happen and to help maybe stop someone or kind of slow it down or, or maybe even keep it from happening at all. It's just some great advice. And that's exactly it. And as a practical matter, having an employee engage in moonlighting, the chances are pretty good that they're not paying full attention to the work that they're doing for your company. You know, if they're spending 40 hours a week on the side with their new up-and-coming project, the 40 hours that they're dedicating to you or whatever those number of hours might be, even if they're physically there, the chances are pretty good that they're not mentally there. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really a policy that makes a lot of sense. And there are some other ways, you know, that not necessarily legal avenues, but by entrance interviews and exit interviews um, and by really espousing your company culture. Um, they can also play a significant role in what happens when an employee leaves. And then from a human perspective, you just treat people well. You mentor them. You treat them with kindness and respect. You treat them fairly. And the chances are very good that they won't stab you in the back the first opportunity they have by setting up shop and competing with you. Yeah, I mean, that's a big one, treating people well, paying them you know, a, a wage that is on par with what's happening in the industry, uh, having company culture. I mean, those are all things that really are kind of secondary deterrence to, to that sort of thing anyway. So people like working for you. They like what they're doing. They feel appreciated and, and, and paid adequately. Most of these things, most of these problems just kind of disappear. Uh, it's amazing how many times when you see examples of this, some some or many of those components are missing. It's, it's not easy to someone decide to go set up shop if they're getting paid terribly or treated right. terribly, you know, even if there are some defensible things put in place. Let's maybe shift here for a moment from your practice to you personally again and talk about your kind of leadership abilities and qualities but maybe who has had the greatest impact on your leadership development and why you know it's probably my staff where whatever your leadership style you better make sure it's working for the people that you're trying to lead if you have a group of type a's you're going to have to lead in a way that appeals to them and they respond to if your office is filled with a group of far more mellow individuals then you're going to be doing something a little different than if you were leading an office full of type a's so i try to pay attention to not only who my employees are but you know and you have to stay true to yourself too and then outside of that, I also pay attention to what those in the business world view as quintessential leaders, you know, people like Steve Jobs. And I look at what they do to motivate, what strategies they've employed, what's been successful, what's unique about them, and what seems to drive their employees to do these amazing things. Not everything is going to translate between industries, but a lot of what we do does. And there are commonalities amongst leaders, you know, like their own boundless passion for what they do, which is something we talk about a little earlier in the program. Yeah, and we talked a little bit about passion and maybe that uh, leading into your personal reading. So I'm going to ask you the, that, uh, some a similar question is, you know, what are you reading right now? Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that book or books that you might be reading at night. Yeah, I'm usually in the middle of a couple of books. In my line of work, it really pays to have a solid understanding of human behavior. So as a result, I tend to read a lot of social science and anthropology works. A large part of what I do is sales, you know, whether it's selling my case to a judge or a jury, selling settlement to the other side, selling the people on the other side of the table as far as transaction on what we want the structure to look like. So I also read a significant amount about sales strategies. I'm a big fan of Daniel Pink and mm -hmm. recently finished uh, – to sell as human. He also wrote Drive. I really like behavioral economists like Dan Ariely. He wrote Predictably Irrational. And right now I'm reading The Social Animal by David Brooks. And I also spend a lot of time in my car, whether it's driving between appointments with clients or depositions, the courthouse, or various meetings and engagements. And I found that audiobooks work really, really well for me. So right now I'm on disc three of Sandra Day O'Connor's Out of Order, which is a history of the Supreme Court. For a law nerd like me, it's great fun. Well, and if you can actually listen to a nonfiction book like that in the car, that, that's remarkable. Because I found <laughs> that in the car, if I'm listening to something that's very detailed and and, and true, you know, it's, it's not, a, it's not a story kind of taking you away. I can't listen to it in the car. I get too focused in on it and I'm not paying attention to the road. And, you know, uh, but at home, I certainly, it's fine. I, I seem to put my fiction on, on in the car, you know, where it's, yeah, well, I'm certainly not encouraging people to uh, drive all distracted, but if you can do both, it's a very effective way. 
Yeah, and certainly another great uh, thing you can do with a car is listen to podcasts like the ones we have out here with Talent Talk Radio. They're certainly great to listen to while you're driving to and from client uh, appointments or sales appointments. Indeed, that's true. And in fact, I've listened to you on podcast once or twice while I was in the car. Oh, excellent. And we know uh, one of our many guests, and we appreciate it, our many listeners, we appreciate it. So, you know, what is your biggest challenge in recruiting top talent for your firm? Well, hiring itself is very challenging, and it's almost impossible to know whether someone's going to be problematic just from a single interview. Most experts tend to recommend three separate interviews to weed out people who are flaky, disinterested, or who manage to have one good interview day amongst 50 bad ones. I think this is a pretty good policy overall, and I do use that. I usually start off with a phone interview that's kind of a screener, a second interview that's in person uh, with me, and a third interview with uh, my staff just to make sure that we ferret out uh, people who might have personality conflicts or, or other issues that might impact the firm culture. I tend to ask a lot of questions that are designed to ferret out laziness, disinterest, and those who take credit for the work of others and bad attitudes. Mm. I can't say that I have the Rosetta Stone, as it were, but I think so far we've done a pretty good job. There are only a handful of things that really interfere with somebody's ability to be an outstanding employee. And, you know, things like laziness or disinterest, intellectual dishonesty, and bad attitudes are really among them. So I think those are pretty important to try to weed out. And I'm also a firm believer in background checks, you know, to the legally permissible limits. One of my clients actually has a constant refrain, how you do one thing is how you do everything. Mm -hmm. So in other words, if you've been intellectually dishonest, or if you've shirked your responsibilities, if you've earned a bad reputation amongst your former employers or fellow coworkers, then you probably shouldn't expect to receive a job offer from her. And while I do believe that people can change, I also think that history can certainly be instructive. So I like to know someone's history. Yeah, you know, many of the things that we do, and we, we certainly have the standard background checks where we're looking at the most basic stuff. But we have some higher level stuff, too, where we're looking at, you know, how do they do in different situations? Because sometimes it's the situation where the, the employee is going to really flourish and do their best work. Talking about your management style, I mean, someone may do really, really well where they're allowed those opportunities to, to be autonomous and work, and, and they'll do great there. Or other people need constant uh, support and help. They may do great work, but they need to be involved in the team environment where they're constantly collaborating and working. Um, so different people work well in different situations. So from a reputation standpoint, sometimes that can be difficult because you might be bringing them in, into your organization that looks completely different than the last three they worked in. And that may be right. a good thing and that might be a bad thing. And, and that's sometimes a really important thing that we looked at. You know, another thing I thought about when you kind of talked about the three interviews and the phone interview, one thing that we really had great success with is Skype interviews because we have found it really interesting some of the things that people do or don't do in preparation for having, you know, a meeting on Skype. Uh, I remember we had a, a meeting with one young lady who was, seemed very bright and everything, but she had her thing up there and her kitchen was, I've never seen a more disastrous kitchen in my life. <laughs> And bottles all over the place. It was, and, and so, and we ended up. We thought, okay, well, maybe that's just. We ended up proceeding with her anyways because everything else was so good. We learned our lesson. She was disorganized. She wasn't what we wanted. We ended up not keeping her, and we should have. We should have realized how well that Skype, you know, sort of, yeah. you know, picture into what was happening in her own life was was going to tell us exactly what was going to happen everywhere else. So, well, I guess how you do one thing really is how you do everything. Sometimes, sometimes, you know, <laughs> and other people showing up in t-shirts to their Skype interview, you know, like they didn't feel it necessary to, to dress up. kind of like to ask you a little bit about your creative process. I know you, you talked a little bit about, uh, you know, having to do legal strategy and different things. That takes a lot of creative kind of mindset. So how do you brainstorm mm-hmm. effectively with your team? Well, my firm's tagline is strategic, aggressive, creative. So thinking outside the box is really important to us and to the firm's clients. In fact, many of them come to us because they're looking for, you know, some, some aggressive strategy or um, creative solutions where others may have failed. So because I represent both plaintiffs and defendants and because we uh, handle both transactional matters and litigation, we really see 
things come to full circle, which I think helps. I think that makes us better able to anticipate problems and offer solutions before those problems even arise. I'm also not a, a big fan of surprises. So not only do I like to know what's coming, map out what the litigation is going to look like or what the negotiations are going to look like, and to get a feel for what the other side is going to do, but I also like to prepare the client for that same thing. As far as my creative process is concerned, I tend to start off by spending some time thinking about the legal problems. I outline it, I diagram it, I'm very visual. I weigh factual pros and cons, I make lists, I consider various strategic advantages, whether we've used them in the past or whether I think they might work um, in this particular case, or you know, just something new that we haven't tried before because the situation hadn't called for it. I come up with some preliminary outline of what I expect everything to look like like and how I'm best off presenting it to a neutral third party like a judge or a jury. And then I consider the evidence and how I'm going to get the facts in that I need. I figure out what discovery I'm going to take, who I need to interview, what documents I need to get my hands on, and how I'm going to get all of that. Then I take a break and do something else, whether it's working on another matter, reading articles, taking a walk, leaving for the night, um, you know, or something very literally doing something creative, you know, painting is a great outlet, um, you know, making balloon animals, really there's no limit. Anything that's creative in the opposite side of your brain will get the juices flowing. Yeah, sometimes I, I like to pull. So I like to pull out the guitar. If I've hitting a an absolute yeah. block, I'll play for five minutes, and suddenly that just seems to massage a different part of my brain, and boom, three more solutions that I hadn't thought of kind of popped up, and that you know that, that's a kind of a really great way to to think about how to be creative. Is I think you you really gave an excellent map. Is to put out all the possibilities, think about all the different ways that you can do it, but at the same time, you run into an area. We have trouble. You need to find a way to be creative to kind of stimulate that. Exactly. You know, we're, we're here at the end of our show where we've run out of time, but you've been a great guest, and uh, hopefully you'll consider coming back again soon. We certainly appreciate everything you had to say. So uh, thank you for being our guest today. Well, um, thank you, and thanks for having me. And uh, don't forget, the last question I wanted to make sure we asked you was, how do we reach you, and how do people find out more about you and your law firm if they're interested? Well, the easiest way is to go to my website, and my website has all my contact information along with my practice areas and brief descriptions of what we do. That website is www.reeslawgroup.com. That's spelled R is in Ralph, I is in iPhone, E is in Elephant, S is in Sam. Law Group spelled the usual way. Great. Well, that's about all the time we have today. Thank you to my special guests, Hong Bui and Nina Reese. Tune in next week at the same time. 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for Talent Talk, brought to you by People G2. To hear Petra Fetters, uh, VP of HR at BD Marketing, and Kathy Chamberlain, Human Resources Business Partner at Green Street Advisors. Uh, hear them to share their thoughts on talent. Until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio Show brought to you by People G2, a company dedicated to helping you with people-related decisions by providing access to the best human capital, due diligence, and background checks on prospective candidates, business partners, tenants, and much more. As we said, Talent our People G2 has been included on the Inc. 5000 list of the fastest-growing privately-owned companies and been recognized as one of the best places to work by the Orange County Business Journal. To learn more about all the things they do at People G2, just visit them online at www.peopleg2. That's People G2.